This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network. It's a term that gets bandied about across the political spectrum to describe, generally, a government in which the shots are called by elite technical experts, whose authority is based in their technical qualifications rather than political affiliations. The idea is as old as Plato's Republic, and versions of it have emerged as utopian movements in Restoration France, the Depression-era US, and the Soviet Union, to name just a few. But in an interconnected world, the question of which experts should call the shots often takes the backseat to matters of connecting up technological and economic systems. In short, if we want to understand governance by experts, actual rather than aspirational, we need to look elsewhere than the most visible executive administrations with politicians who have plans for that. In their book, Engineering Rules, Global Standard Setting Since 1880, published in 2019 by Johns Hopkins University Press, Joanne Yates and Craig N. Murphy explore the history of private voluntary standard setting, the kind of social organization behind rules about how supply chains should run and how data should be transmitted to your smartphone. This model of governance, distributed communities of technical experts making recommendations, exerts an unusual amount of authority over the modern world. While engineering standards initially developed because they were useful to industry, Yates and Murphy describe how engineers and their organizations fought to maintain an emphasis on the process of standard setting, an important lesson in an age when the internet has become all-pervasive. That's governed by standards committees, too. Yates and Murphy both come from different, yet complementary, academic perspectives. So my career. I'm a business historian, but I'm in a business school, so I also do some contemporary research. But but within my business history work, uh, I have always focused on communication, the intersection of business history and history of technology, and focused on communication and information technology within that. 
So my first book, Control Group Communication, looked at the evolution of the internal communication system in firms up to 1820. And my second book, Structuring the Information Age, looked at um, the adoption and use of early computers in insurance companies. So, uh, And both of these were U.S.-focused. So I was an American business historian. So I'm a historically-oriented political scientist. I've been interested in the ways in which international institutions uh, have shaped the global economy since the middle of the 19th century. One major book I had is called uh, International Organization and Industrial Change, Global Governance Since 1850, which talks about the, the predecessors to the League of Nations and the United Nations, which did a lot of work in technological areas. They, they were concerned with establishing uh, the market areas for uh, industrial trade in the, in, uh, the enterprises at, at the end of the 19th century. And I've done contemporary work on the way in which the UN staff uh, operates in the field. Uh, the United Nations is actually about 93 separate organizations, and well over 95% of the people who work in, in the UN system uh, do not work in, in New York or Geneva. They actually work in the field doing uh, real things like helping the uh, United Arab Emirates start uh, a new airline. So... How did they come to write the book? Hint, they're married. Given this different, his global, his global focus and my American focus, we wanted to come together on something we could do together. We'd been joking throughout our entire careers about we should find a subject we could both work on. And when the notion of standards came up, we both immediately uh, resonated with. Right. I, I was actually working in the United Nations on this kind of history of the UN's work in, in, in the field. Uh, and at the same time I was there in the early part of the, the century, the Secretary General, Kofi Annan, had this, uh, what turned out to be something of a cockamamie idea, that you could regulate uh, all of the bad things that are consequences of globalization by following the rules of the International Organization for Standardization. And he came up with this idea of something called the Global Compact, which would be private uh, standards for things like uh, human rights and, and uh, labor rights and that sort of thing. We started thinking about, well, standardization, there's a topic that we're both interested in. I mean, we haven't actually mentioned to this point, but we're married. <laughs> So part of the original idea was we've been married 30 years. Let's see if we can challenge our marriage. And we survived it. We survived (laughs) What is a standard after all? What is it that these organizations are producing? They're getting, actually, a piece of paper. That tells you how to uh, design a particular product or the, the way the product is supposed to work or do gives you uh, information about uh, the, the way in which a, a product can be evaluated about fitting, uh, being fit for use. So prominent standards that we use all the time are like ASCII, which is the, the electronic standard that converts the electronic uh, signals into uh, letters and, and numbers, which, which we use on our computers all the time. Uh, the container standard, which is the standard for those big, ugly boxes that you know, are 40 feet long and 8 feet high and, and, 
and APY, um, it's something that affects virtually, look around the room, every product that you have purchased since the 1980s uh, came to you through one of those containers. And if you look at your uh, smartphone, everything related to it is standardized in one way or another, down to the screws that hold it together mechanically. So yeah. mechanical and electronic, everything around us is affected by standards. When you start looking at this subject, you realize that the world would not work as it does today. Voluntary standard setting is the main subject of the book, so I asked Yates and Murphy to give me a sense of what the alternatives were and are to this day. There's also a question of the committee itself. Who gets a say? I want to position it between, on the one hand, market standards wars, and on the other hand, government standard setting or intergovernmental standard setting. We're looking at the the voluntary standards. It turns out that there are reasons why voluntary standards actually are by far the most prevalent. Governments don't actually like to set standards. They prefer to have technical committees set them and then point to them in legislation. Every time you set a standard, there will be somebody, some of your constituents, business constituents, who will be using some other standard, and they get mad. So uh, governments don't really hate doing this, and they also are not very good at it. And markets take too long, and they waste a lot of everyone's money when you have, you know, Betamax and VHS uh, during that particular... Blu-ray and DVD. Blu-ray and DVD and so on. So, so it's positioned between those two um, oppositions. It's also the, the notion of technical committees doing the process. It, it's fundamental to this process that the technical committee encompasses a balanced set of um, constituents. So you need to have both producers and users of any technology. Now, those users, in, especially in the early days, were other firms. They weren't individuals. They were firms. So, for example, when you're standardizing the rails that railroads travel on, you have both the uh, representatives of the steel companies and representatives of the railroads. And then a third, the third leg of the stool was, in fact, a category known variously as uh, the common good, the, the general interest. General interest. <laughs> and engineers represent, representing everybody else who's not, not at the table, which includes ultimate consumers. And typically, in the early years, this was typically done by engineers coming from places like private universities. The idea was to create these committees that have represent what are now called stakeholders. Uh, earlier, they were called with a nice German word, interest and groupen, interest groups. But now, interest groups, political scientists, made them sound like they're bad. So we don't you know, call them stakeholders. It sounds so much nicer that way. Uh, but there are, you know, the, the various different interests involved, engineers representing the various different interests, uh, trying to reach consensus on the best way to do this. Historian Mark Mazower, who has written a lot about world government in the 19th and 20th centuries, has singled out the ISO for its influence. I asked Yates and Murphy how they see this interpretation. Mazower has, has an interesting way of talking about the role of scientists and engineers in 
ideas of global governance and kind of the actuality of global governance from the 19th century onward. But he has a sort of tendency to say the scientists and engineers um, were doing the most creative work perhaps at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century. He does, in fact, say that the ISO is like the most powerful organization that you've never heard of. But it's not actually that organization that's powerful. It's this network of a couple of hundred thousand engineers working in different committees in a variety of different organizations. This nested under the ISO and its other sets of organizations as well that have existed since the ISO that are the things that are powerful. And oddly enough, the creativity of the engineers is not something that's a 19th century, early 20th century thing uh, entirely. It's also uh, in the last 10 or 15, 20 years that the Internet and the World Wide Web are governed by voluntary consensus standard setting committees modeled on the same kind of processes that were invented in the 1880s to think about the strength of steel rails. Uh, they're still with us. It's not, it's not something that is just kind of quirky and old-fashioned. And when you say Tim Berners-Lee, you know, the inventor of the World Wide Web, uh, he sounds a lot more exciting than 19th century engineers to many of us today, but they're all the same. They really are people following the same set of rules and the same, have the same idea. I might argue that Tim Berners-Lee, we, we all think of him as the inventor of the World Wide Web, but I think his role as a founder of an organization to standardize the web is just as important as his invention of the original protocols. So what kind of history have Yates and Murphy written? Maybe Mazower is making the typical assumption that science and technology are, while not necessarily a historical, resources outside of politics, which actors selectively draw upon. I asked Yates and Murphy whether their account is a history of technology that seeks to correct this perspective by showing how the political and the technical are interwoven, or rather, if they see themselves as doing something else. I think our book is a history of an institution or a set of institutions, a process, and a, and a set of people. We're not talking about specific standards. Our book is not about standards themselves. It's about the way they get created, the organizations or institutions that that create them, the the process, the specific process that voluntary consensus standards go through, and uh, you know the beliefs that went with that, the 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 set of beliefs that the early standardizers developed about the importance of this process to the world, they saw this as their contribution to the common good. For them, the they were, in the late uh, 19th century, they were professionalizing. And professional communities in are, are expected to, in some way, contribute to the common good. And their contribution to the common good, in their view, was this role that they could play in setting standards. They thought that that was the the thing they could give the world, and that's what they've been doing ever since. Yeah, and and in terms of the the history of you know, history of technology and history of engineering, which is connected with all, all the technologies, um, this standardization in that first generation from the, the 1880s until the 1930s, 1940s, 19 well, 
1940s. Uh, standardization was the thing that engineers used as their claim to the, the good that they were giving to the world. I mean, it was the, it was the leading edge of the way in which engineers were going to make the world better for, for, for all of us. Uh, so it's actually, it's actually key. It, it's very key to an engineering ideology as well, as well as just the ideology of the standard. Social movements are often inflected with the norms and assumptions of their time. So I asked Jason Murphy to say a little bit more about where and when their narrative picks up in the late 19th century. So, it, it, you know, it, it starts, at least our argument is, it starts with a, with a how do we demonstrate uh, that we should be treated like gentlemen um, as, as, uh, as part of, as part of the, the process of professionalization. But it quickly became because the things that they were doing were in uh, were actually public services. And also because of it, in one sense, the engineers' recognition of the failures of government and the failures of the market. Um, you get a reinforcement of that so that immediately after the First World War, where you get an incredibly intense sense of, of this as, as a movement, the engineers are looking around and they're saying, oh, look, government's a total failure. They've given us the war and now they're giving us the, the immediate post-war recession. Uh, they're not employing people, everything of that sort. Our, our ideas are ones that are better than what government is doing. And it's things that businesses obviously can't do by themselves and the market can't do by themselves. There's sort of a way in which, I, as a social scientist, I, I have a little interest in you know, the history of social science and the kind of stuff that, that Torsten Bevelin was writing at that time about the engineers and the price system, where he was saying, well, engineers are kind of like the real working class who are going to create create the um, the uto- utopian world that, uh, that the communist parties have not been able to create or the socialist parties have not been able to create, uh, and certainly the capitalism can't create. Well, Bevelin was actually listening to real people, and the people that he was listening to, the engineers who were saying the same things that Bevelin was saying were these engineers. They were the people who came, came out of it, you know, were part of this movement. But the, this movement did not focus on politics. The engineers no. weren't focusing on politics. They saw making the world work better as yeah. being the key. Their services would do it. I mean, in that sense, it's much more like, say, the Red Cross, which is also a sort of social movement, which wasn't wasn't saying that the government governments uh, should take on these activities or anything of that sort. It was saying, we, as a, as a private social movement, can provide these things. Social movements also need their founders and guiding lights, and institutions often need their entrepreneurs. I asked about the trade-off between charismatic leaders and the movements they support. These individuals were ones who could, who were eloquent in their, in their attempt to convince others that this was the right way to go. The, the principles that they were advocating, though, came from a set of principles that engineers believed in in general. Efficiency, you know, you should waste resources. <laughs> uh, they also believed in internationalism, interestingly enough, even though standardization was often done in the, in the name of nations as well. There was a very strong internationalist streak through the movement, which came 
from the, the internationalist streak in science. I mean, they adopted it from the scientists who used to meet in big international meetings to agree on standards for the naming of units, for example. So that, that, that streak of internationalism, I think they adopted from the scientists. Yeah. I, mean, I think that there's a way in which this, you know, thinking of social movements and the individual, in a lot of the, the broader literature on social movements, there's a tension, always a tension, between uh, the social movement and its goals and the need to form organizations in order to sustain the social movement. And uh, e even when you're talking about, um, you know, the, for the formation of the socialist movement, the labor movement, uh, organizations tend to be formed by um, organizational entrepreneurs. Uh, and it's kind of as if the story could not be told without some of the individuals. I mean, the, the individuals that we, that we highlight are all people who are uh, figure out how, how to get the movement ideas uh, working a little bit more effectively, either by establishing uh, specific organizations uh, or by making those organizations work much more effectively. Uh, Oli Stern in, in Chapter 5, the guy who's really the key figure in getting the ISO, the International Organization for Standardization, to act the way it was supposed, supposed to act. He wasn't the guy who created the organization, but he really created the organization as it is today. And that's kind of, you know, there's a, there's, there are also these issues in the social movement literature about the bureaucratization of social movements. Once you get the organizations, there can be all kinds of problems that are then associated with, you know, the organization surviving being more important than actually this, the social movement goals. And those are all just as true in the, in the standardization story as they are in the story of many other social movements of the 19th and 20th century. It differs from some other movements in that it's, it, it's not pushing a political point of view, it's pushing a process. One of the sort of surprising things was to discover the extent to which the engineers' belief in internationalism and the process made them really uh, work very hard in the post-World War II era to involve all the countries in standardization and not to let the Cold War tensions, for example, keep them from cooperating with Eastern Bloc countries. We have the records of, we have correspondence from an engineer that worked for a, an automobile company talking about how well the, the meeting in Czechoslovakia was run and how... How democratic they are. Uh, how how democratic the they were in following the, the rules of the process. <laughs> and, and how, in fact, the U.S. found that he, as the representative of U.S. interests in that case often agreed with them more than he agreed with the British. The British. <laughs> Back to the events. Yeats and Murphy told me about how World War I had a major influence on the shaping of voluntary standard setting in an age of nascent internationalism. World War II also served as a driver and lies at the foundation of the ISO we have today. So World War I at the point when World War I started, really there were only two countries that had national standards bodies. But 
as a as a consequence of the war, more of them started national standardizing bodies, and that whole uh, movement of national standardizing bodies became very strong in the years immediately following the war. But the international strain had already started with the IEC, the International Electrotechnical Commission. It was started in 1906, so very early, only uh, three or four years after the first national um, body. And it had semi-closed down during the war. It kind of went on hiatus and background processes continued, but it didn't really function during the war. And then it picked back up after the war. So when, when, and the same thing happened during World War II, most international standards organizations went on hiatus and didn't really function fully. So, so you get that, you get this push in the movement right after the First World War of creating national standard setting bodies. But the reason you're doing that is because you're, you're supporting a process that is supposed to ultimately be global. And you're doing this, you know, the people within the, within these organizations are doing this in an incredibly cooperative way. They're, they are trying to get all other, uh, engineers and engineering bodies and all other nations around the world to also establish standard setting bodies. And then there's a, a move, uh, to create a cooperative system of at least exchanging standards. And in fact, they do end up issuing some international standards. Uh, at, at the same time. But then, you know, really after 1929, after, after the, uh, stock market crash, after Hitler uh, comes to power in 1933, um, there is, the standardization movement, uh, suffers from, uh, the nat- nat- rising nationalism of, of, of that period. Uh, and kind of goes into a, a, a period where even though there is an international standardization body, um, the, the fever of, of the movement is, has been kind of pushed down partially because everybody's having trouble even, you know, paying the, paying the bills to make, to make the standardization organizations work. The second world war is, a uh, in, on the allied side, Including the Soviet Union is a, you know, a period of, of reinvigoration of the, of the entire movement. And immediately after the war, the ISO gets, they, they put the ISO together. There was some discussion about should it be a UN organization? And that no, we have to keep it as, as, uh, primarily a, a, a private organization. And so that's, you know, that the, the, the war created, um, Again, much both wars created more strength for the, the standardization movement, oddly. Well, so let me um, highlight one piece of that. The war, the Second World War, revived the national standards organizations, which had been um, having troubles during the Depression because they just didn't have enough money. And during the war, every country gave their national standards body, plenty of money and told them to go full speed setting standards because they needed the standards. Most of what was reinvigorated was the national level. Towards the end of World War II, though, something interesting happened. 
they, the allies tried to set up an allied standardizing organization to help them create standards for the allies. That organization was the organization that then launched the new ISO post-war. And it, and it was interesting that the extent to which the people involved in that organization, many of whom who had been around since the First World War, of course, uh, were interested not only in making sure that all of the allies were involved, but also making sure that as quickly as possible, neutral countries and uh, former enemy countries, uh, private standard setting bodies, would be brought back in to uh, the international movement. It was helpful, again, one of these individual sorts of things, it was particularly helpful that the leading German standardization engineer, Helmisch, was actually very important immediately after the war in talking about how horrible uh, the the engineering profession had been in becoming collaborators with the Nazis. Uh, He led an effort to rethink how engineers had operated and to rethink the engineering ethics. It's not really in in the book, um, perhaps as as strongly as it should be, but but the engineering profession was the first of the professional uh, organizations in the Germanys to actually rethink what what happened with the Nazis. It took a little bit longer for other scientists and for medicine and and other fields to do that. And that made it much, in one sense, much easier to rebuild the cooperation that existed in the 1920s in the 1950s. And Charles Maestra, who had been a major figure as a standardization entrepreneur from the beginning of the standards movement, his last big achievement, in his view, right before he died, was to bring Germany back into ISO. ISO, an acronym that actually means the International Organization for Standards, not the International Standards Organization or what you might expect, is a major fulcrum of the book. So I asked a bit more about its particular and surprising history. For one, its most important secretary general had humble origins as the secretary of the Swedish Lawn Tennis Association. So much of the focus of, of the engineering community uh, immediately after the war was with reconstruction of individual countries. And Stern was concerned, from coming from Sweden, he was concerned, uh, as many Swedes were, with uh, what might happen if the European community you know, the, 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 what was originally the European uh, economic community, um, cut out uh, industry from the rest of, of Europe in, into the European market. So, And then there were lots of other engineers in, in places like the Soviet Union, but also in Germany and France, who were thinking, oh, we, we need to make sure that, that, uh, that engineered goods, industrial goods are being exchanged uh, globally. And basically, Stern and the Dutch, and then bringing in the Soviets and the British and and, and the Germans, sort of said, "Oh, let's get rid of the uh, director of the organization, who originally was an American, uh, and figure out a way to start 
mostly focusing on uh, creating international standards because that's really where the, the market is going to be eventually. And they did a kind of coup d'etat in the 1960s, you know, early 1960s to, to let that, that happen. After the war, when they formed ISO, the International Organization for Standards, they put in charge, and this sort of did reflect the post-war era, they put an American in charge. A diplomat. A diplomat. Not an engineer. Right. And he he did not, he was more concerned with figuring out how ISO could be become part of the UN system than he was interested in actually setting standards. So when he didn't lead them to a very, a very rapid pace of setting standards, people like Ole Stern got very worried because they felt that many international standards were needed right away and ISO wasn't doing the job. And, and oddly enough, the, the, the connection with the United Nations, which is stuff that you know, I, I know from my earlier work, um, the, the United Nations wanted the ISO to be working uh, the way it was supposed to in the sense of, of creating international standards from the very beginning, uh, partially because the the, one of the major goals of the UN staff, at least from the 1940s onward, was industrial development in the developing world. And a lot of the early technical assistance from the United Nations went to creating two types of institutions across the developing world. One was engineering universities, but the other was national standardization bureaus. So the the, the UN was paying for people like Ole Stern to go to, as Stern did, Turkey to have Tur- help Turkey set up a, a, a national standardization bureau at the same time that the UN was paying various people to go to Turkey to set up the Middle East Technical University. And so, you know, actually, Poursan Leger, the guy who was the American who was the, the head of the organization, didn't even quite figure out what was going on in the UN. He was still thinking the UN was the talking shop of governments, but the UN was already becoming this uh, organization concerned with economic development that, that actually was a huge staff that was directing people in different ways. Ole Sturgeon himself had this notion that a huge number of standards were needed. 17,000 or something. Something like that. that. To run the... Yeah, which we have many more. A modern industrial economy. And he, he just... He saw that ISO in the 50s was just not working fast enough. a hundred a year, and that's not, well, not even a hundred a year. And it just wasn't producing things fast enough. So when he came in, it, the, you know, his mate, as the head, head of ISO, his major uh, activity was to convince the National Standard Setting Bureaus, the organizations that are the members of ISO, and then all of the organizations that are members of them, to start creating international standards as rapidly as possible. There's a big way in which this book provides an understudied example of the history of global neoliberalism. To illustrate this, we talked about the standardization of the shipping container and its influence on the global economy. Before the shipping container, basically every one of hundreds of thousands of items that that a ship was going to carry was was individually dropped into the hold by longshoremen who figured out how to get it all in and, and, and a huge amount of the expense of transportation was the, the loading and unloading of ships. 
the, and the notion that one could reduce the price of that by creating containers has, has been around for a while and had been used in some idiosyncratic ways. But the idea of having a standard size that could also be used as an intermodal shipping container, that is, that a container could move from a ship to either railroads or truck transportation, that idea emerged in the 50s, and it started in the U.S. A couple of companies de- developed their own internal standards, which were quite different from each other. So one of them had 24-foot containers, and one of them had 35-foot containers. And they were just trying to create efficiency within their own companies so that they could get things transported on land and sea less expensively. They started to uh, want to push towards having uh, standard shipping containers. An American standard gets established uh, that then gets taken to an international set of negotiations. And uh, a variety of things happen in the international set of negotiations, which are being strongly pushed by Ole Stern, by the Dutch. Um, you know, think of the interests of, of Rotterdam as the, as the major uh, port already for, for Western Europe, uh, by the British, by a whole bunch of, 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 of uh, national port groups are, are actually concerned with this and, and uh, transportation systems of different, different sorts. And the international standards get uh, established and start being used even when they're in a draft form. Once the standard gets set, the ISO continues to be pushing uh, standardization of everything that goes along with the standard container, the ships, the, the uh, loading on, loading off sorts of things. And it's certainly the case that, uh, although not noticed by economists forever, that the actual standardization of the container is probably one of the major reasons that we have the contemporary economy that we have. We think one of the ironies about this is that the shipping container was not something that the ideologues were trying to create uh, a neoliberal economy. The economists who were working to create the World Trade Organization, uh, who saw themselves as neoliberals, um, the governments of the Thatcher and Reagan and that sort of stuff, containers were not on their mind. On their mind was all of this stuff of deregulation various forms of deregulation of trade and uh, and, and tariffs and, and, and that sort of thing. Yet, ironically, perhaps the thing that contributed the most to our contemporary economy was not that. It was actually these, these little containers. And yeah, there's a connection between the container story and some things that look like regular neoliberalism stories, like the fact that longshoremen, there are many fewer longshoremen, but the longshoremen got bought out. But well, actually, they, when they got bought out, because it, it saved so much money, they really bought out all of the longshoremen. In the industrialized world, yeah. Right. Yeah, ports are still terribly, terribly important in terms of uh, being places where, because of the power of labor at the ports, uh, even, you know, in fact, perhaps in one sense, even more so now with, with, with uh, the container shipping, if you really want to put effort on uh, regulating trade and making things either better or different, if you can close off the ports, you're in 
a really good position to do that. In the 80s and 90s, new organizations were set up to standardize telecommunications and networking. And I asked about how this model of power and organization relates to the ISO. So let me start with the global versus international distinction. Um, in, the, in the ISO and the IEC, which are international standard setting organizations, each country has representatives. They have a delegation to it. A set of engineers who attended, they're picked not by governments, but by uh, technical associations, but they are representing each nation. So, and one vote per country. So that also means that, for example, the U.S. has one vote and um, all the developing countries have a vote each and can, and can outvote the U.S. easily. Uh, what happens with the movement as it comes into the 80s and 90s is that the new organizations like the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force, that is set up to do the um, standardizing in that arena, they are not organized by countries at all. There is no country representation. It's all individuals who belong to it uh, in the IETF. And they can be from any country. Anyone can belong. But they, there's no guarantee that every nation will be heard. So that's quite different from the ISO. And, and it has some advantages and some disadvantages. Has the Internet, a lot of the, uh, of the infrastructure was created in a few countries, and mostly the U.S., and it's not surprising that there are a lot of people who care a lot about it in the U.S. And so those are the people who are most often at the meetings. You know, there's this kind of irony and this tension between the fact that they claim to be global. The organizations don't actually necessarily represent lots of parts of the world. They don't even represent half of the U.S. <laughs> they tend to be, it, it tends to be white males, basically, who, who run those, um, who are the major players. It's not that there aren't women and that there are a few women. There are, uh, they, they try to bring in a few people from other countries, from developing countries, but it's really dominated by white males from the Western countries, U.S. and Europe. Finally, the book includes some direct fieldwork on the making of the Web Crypto API standard by the W3C, the standards committee that governs the World Wide Web. I asked Yates and Murphy to unpack the story behind this standard and what it says about the organization itself. There was a certain amount of convenience to our choice of web crypto. The, the World Wide Web Consortium, its, it's U.S. base is at MIT. So it required for me just to walk across campus to talk to the um, the head of the World Wide Web Consortium to, to ask, could we observe one of the technical committees at work? And uh, he said yes, and then he picked a particular committee um, 
and I think it, it's interesting because the committee, I, I'm sure he hoped it would make, it would come to its conclusion more rapidly than it did. It ended up taking five years um, for it to, which is very typical of the old uh, type of standardization that happens in ISO and IEC and all the national bodies. It just takes a long time to reach consensus. Um, the, the IETF and the NWCC, the Internet and the World Wide Web uh, standardizing bodies, they were formed in part because they wanted to do it faster. They thought the old system was too slow. But it turns out but reaching it turns consensus among all stakeholders actually takes a, takes a long time. Four right. or five years. <laughs> right. Well, and it wasn't all that. It was also getting people to do the work in the yeah. last stage of it. But, but in any case, the, the web crypto was a, a particularly interesting example from from my point of view, because it dealt with security on the web, which was of a lot of concern to people. During this period, Edward Snowden and his actions became public, and that put security even more in the spotlight. And it wasn't that they actually talked about it in the committee, but it was clearly in the background and not very far back in the background. So. So this whole, during this five-year period, during almost four years of the five-year period, I I read every email uh, that came through, and there were thousands, over 5,000 of them, and they were long <laughs> and detailed and technical. I, I attended two face-to-face -face meetings, and I attended biweekly uh, phone meetings as well. Because I wanted to get a really, we wanted to have one case study that got a really close-up of what happened in, in in a standard setting process. So we got to see the standard setting process actually play out, and that was what uh, that was what was so interesting to us about web crypto. When you watch it playing out, you realize you see lots of things going on. For example. I think a lot of people assume that companies have their own interests and anyone from a particular company would push that company's interests. I saw some of that from particular companies, but I also saw disagreement, fundamental disagreement initially on the whole direction that that effort should take from a single company. So you learn that it's not just about a company's interests. It's not clear that the companies knew what their interests were in right. this. One of the things that we saw in all the older, the earlier standardization is that the typical standardizer was incredibly patient, was willing to go through this endless process to reach consensus. I mean, I ended up with a great admiration for these engineers because I can't imagine doing it myself, you know, being able to go on and on and on on, on these um, balloting and reballoting proposed standards. So in the what what I saw happening in the web crypto was that because one player who was the editor of the actual standard for much of the time had very strong individual views. No one could out argue him. He could continue argue, arguing longer than anyone else could in the earlier period. 
people were dedicated to the standard saving the world, saving the world through standardization. In this period, they were dedicated to saving the world through the internet or saving the world through the World Wide Web. But it's still a case where if you're going to explain a, a positive outcome, and I think, you know, this is at least a hypothesis, that without the kind of um, social movement zeal, the process doesn't work. I mean, that that's really part of what, but what makes the, this, it's kind of the secret sauce. That, that, that is there within the, the system. Before signing off, I asked what's next for these accomplished senior scholars, having put their marriage to the test with this major project. I guess I, I personally don't plan to write another historical book. I plan to continue looking at standards, but more on the article level, and I'm sure I'll get drawn into other projects as well, but this was a big push, <laughs> and having gotten it through, I'm ready to take on smaller chunks for a while rather than a bigger project. I'm actually just continuing to do a little bit of research, but mostly on how durable inequalities of gender, race, class, etc. Um, make it very hard for the global governance of climate change to work. So that's, that's really, uh, you know, back, back to global governance issues, but thinking about uh, the next generation. Thanks so much for listening. This has been another episode of New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network. 